Have you ever seen something that just didn't quite fit? Uh, like, like maybe it was that you were off to college and you came back on spring break, and when you got back home, you realized that your dad has a new affinity for wearing skinny jeans. And you're like, this just doesn't work. No, you know, or, or maybe it's even this morning, right? Uh, you came here this morning expecting to hear an introverted skinny guy with a short haircut. <laughs> Fair enough. And, and instead, you see a guy up here with a really big personality. <laughs> and, and you're trying to figure out exactly where everything fits together. A, a couple of weeks ago, I read a story about a brother and sister in Ohio who kind of went through a similar situation. You see, uh, it was around lunchtime and they started getting hungry, and so they thought they'd run off to McDonald's. Now, that's not the part of the story that doesn't seem to make sense to me, by the way. Uh, but they thought they'd run off to McDonald's and grab a couple of cheeseburgers, so they hop in their car. It's a couple of miles down the road. They drive over the railroad tracks and through a couple of stoplights. Uh, and the whole time that they're driving... Uh, other people are just kind of pointing at them, right? The same way that, that you might if you see someone with their gas cap open or with a flat tire. Well, they get through the drive-thru, they give the cashier some money, and they get their cheeseburgers. And, and one of the diners who's sitting in the restaurant starts to realize that something's just not quite right. So, so she calls the cops. And uh, the reason that she calls the cops is because she, she actually knows the driver and the passenger. She's their aunt, actually. And she realizes that's what's, what's wrong is that the driver is actually her eight-year-old nephew. <laughs> and the passenger is her four-year-old niece. And they are in the car alone, and they've been safe, but the cops come over, and they pull them over and say, well, you can go ahead and finish your cheeseburgers while your parents come here, but we have a question for you. <laughs> how did you know to do this? Like, how did you figure this out? And the, uh, the little boy uh, looks at the cop and said, well, you know, we were hungry and we had a few dollars. And well, neither one of us really knew how to drive. So, so I jumped on YouTube and in about 10 minutes, I figured out how to do it. And so I got here safely. <laughs> you know, th- there's a reality, right? That that there are occasionally things that you see in our lives that just don't fit. Like, that you're like, this just seems a little off. It, it, we can tell when, when things are just beyond the boundaries of what is acceptable, of what is, of what is normal. And in reality, we have a certain set of these guidelines, of these lines, of these boundaries that, that have been drawn for us, that we, that we recognize, that we understand when... For example, we know, and I know that this might surprise most of us who live here in Tucson, that there are these things called speed limits. And we know that there's a certain regulation when it comes to traffic, like don't drive in the left-hand lane with your right turn signal on going 15 miles an hour. We know that that's a regulation, that's a line. And when it gets crossed, we know it. Yeah, and we're thankful for these, actually. We're thankful that there are rules and regulations about how old you have to be to run for office or to vote. We're happy that there are credentialing processes for doctors and for surgeons. We're happy about that when we go and need surgery. And, and honestly, a lot of these lines get drawn for us by those who are not us. But I actually think for most of us, 
It's actually those lines that we have to draw with our own two hands that are often the most difficult. It's the lines, the boundaries that we say, this just isn't quite right. Now, we know this when someone else doesn't have them drawn well. We, we can all think of those people that, that draw the line so closely that it's super restrictive, or, or that draw them so openly that anything goes. And, and we see both of those flaws out there, both of which have different impacts, right? You draw the line in too closely, and it maybe means that you didn't go see Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2 this weekend. Or you draw it really openly, and you leave yourself open to a space of dependency or helplessness or unfortunately even violence. Here at Grace over the last few weeks, we've been talking about this thing called crossing the line, about how do we figure out what to do about crossing the line, about these boundaries, those that are drawn for us and those that we draw ourselves. And it's honestly not just us here at Grace that are having this conversation. I mean, as a nation, we're having this conversation. I mean, just in the last few weeks, there's been a big conversation with Vice President Pence and the Billy Graham rule about who you can eat lunch with. Or if you go and see the movie The Circle with Emma Watson and Tom Hanks, the question about how far social media allows us to go and what kind of boundaries we have to draw. But this morning, what what I'd like us to think about as we continue this conversation is to think about what it looks like to actually draw effective boundaries. Is it possible to draw boundaries that are actually healthy, where we understand how we relate to each other in a way that's actually mutually beneficial? This morning, the big idea for today, the thing that I would like you to walk out of here with is this, and it's really simple to remember, it's this that healthy boundaries help define and protect your priorities. Let me say that again, okay? Healthy boundaries, or establishing healthy boundaries, helps define and protect your priorities. This morning, we're going to be looking at a story in the Bible about a couple of brothers who didn't necessarily have the best way with it when they tried to establish boundaries. We're going to be looking at a story uh, of two brothers that shows up in the book of Genesis. It's in chapter 36, if you have your Bible here with you. Uh, As a side note, if you don't happen to have a physical copy of the Bible and you'd like to follow along with us, you can follow along on your cell phone or your tablet. Uh, You can check in front of some of the seats in front of you. There's a physical Bible. Uh, And if you're on your cell phone or your tablet, just go to gracetucson.org slash Bible. And, of course, you can also follow along right behind me. The verses will show up on the screen as we talk. And we would welcome you to kind of follow along with us as we do that. Let me say this. If you have just recently started exploring this whole faith thing, too, like maybe you, you came on Easter and you're starting to check out this Jesus question, and maybe, maybe you told someone you got a Bible and you started reading it, maybe you started on page one, uh, the good news is that you're probably in about the right spot for this story. So we're, we're probably establishing a pretty good a pretty good space because we'll be in Genesis chapter 36 looking at a couple of brothers named Jacob and Esau and the complications that they had drawing boundaries, some lessons that we can learn from their mistakes, and then ultimately how to draw effective boundaries by looking at Jesus, who's ultimately the hero of our story. 
okay? But before we jump into the text and look at that, let's take just a minute and pray and ask that God would help us to understand what these boundaries look like. Jesus, we are thankful this morning that you are a good God who loves us. God, we thank you that, that you drew effective boundaries to show us what it looks like to live a life that loves God. We ask this morning that as we talk about this, that we would understand what it looks like in our lives, that we would apply these things, God, that we would make you our priority and that we would live into a life that loves the people around us. Jesus, it's in your name we pray these things. Amen. Before we jump into the text, so let me ask you all a quick question, okay? How many of you all have siblings? Raise your hand. A good majority of us. How many of you all that don't have siblings, maybe you're like the parent of multiple children or the grandparent or the aunt or the uncle or like you have some capacity where you have multiple children at some point in your life you have. Everybody almost... Most of us probably have had that, and and I'm sure that this was not your story, but I have a sister as well. Her name is Haley, and and we grew up not exactly having a sibling rivalry when we were younger, because when we were younger, the the truth is the reason we didn't have a sibling rivalry is I was just a jerk. (laughs) Uh, Realistically, there was no space for a rivalry because I just wanted to control everything, and But when we got to college, we actually had the opportunity to go to college together. And we took a couple of classes together. And that's actually where our sibling rivalry developed, was when we were in college. Uh, You see, one of us was the type of student who would, the very first day of class, buy all of our books. And we would start on page one, and we would read every single page and take diligent notes. Weeks in advance, we would start studying for the test. So there's no cramming here. We would make flashcards and memorization techniques, and we would talk to the teacher to see if there was any extra homework. And Okay, that was my sister, actually. (laughs) On the other hand, and not that this is a good model, but I would show up to my professor's door uh, the last week of class and be like, is there any way, please, 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 that I can get my grade to match my sister's? (laughs) And because I'm pretty good at this talking thing, I was able to oftentimes convince them, and at the end of the semester, our grades will look the same. Haley, if you're listening, I was just kidding about that last part. If you're not, it's absolutely true. The, the, the reality is that that created a rivalry, okay? It created the space where, for very obvious reasons, she got frustrated. And my sister and I honestly get along super well. Like, we have been able to kind of work through this. But our, our rivalry, and your sibling rivalry, if you have one, doesn't even hold a candle to the sibling rivalry that we're going to look at today of Jacob and Esau. You see, Jacob and Esau, from their very birth, they were just right at each other. In fact, the Bible says that when they were born, even, that Esau was born first, but only by a few seconds, because Jacob was literally holding on to his heel as they came out of the womb. I've got you. You got to come back. This, this whole process continued as they aged. The, the Bible tells us that, that Esau was this hunter-gatherer kind of guy. He, I'm not going to lie, I'm a little jealous of him. It says that he was covered in red fur, which meant that he probably had even a better beard than I do. Okay? A little jealous. He was the kind of guy, huge muscles I have to imagine, the kind of guy that would, that would run a marathon because it was on the way. You know, or the kind of guy that like trimmed his fingernails with a chainsaw. <laughs> you know, those kind of guys, that was Esau. Meanwhile, Jacob, his brother, loved to party. And by party, I mean read. 
okay? He was the kind of super introvert. He loved to cook and to clean. He was the one who, he was always at home tending to the homestead. The Bible tells us that when they were growing up, that one day Esau was out hunting and gathering, and Jacob was at home cooking. So Esau comes back from his, from his pillaging and says, man, I'm hungry. And Jacob says, sure, I'll be happy to get you a cup of soup. It'll just cost you everything. It'll cost you your birthright. It'll cost you your inheritance. Esau thinking, if I don't eat, I'm literally going to die. says, okay. And so he trades his birthright for a bowl of soup in what is literally known as the worst trade deal in the history of humanity. He makes this terrible trade. And later in life, this develops even further. You see, their father, Isaac, loved Esau. He was his little hunter, you know? Mom, Rebecca, loved Jacob. They did things together, and they, she favored him. And so as Isaac was getting older, as the dad was getting older, his eyesight started to kind of fade, and he thought, you know what? Before I die, I want to make sure that my favorite son at least has a blessing, has my, has my big blessing, sort of has like the keys to the family business. And so he says to his wife, hey, would you bring Esau in? I'd like to give him my last blessing. So she goes out, sees that Esau is out hunting and says, we got one more trick up our sleeve. Goes and gets to the brother Jacob, brings him in. Says, here's what we need to do. I need you to put fur all over your arms so that when your dad, whose eyesight isn't so good, reaches out to touch your arm, you tell him that you're your brother and it'll fool him. And he's going to give you the blessing. So he does. And twice, Jacob cheats his brother Esau out of his blessing. At that point, Jacob starts to get fearful because Esau says, I'm going to kill you. And I don't know about you, but anytime you see a big, massive, bearded man who's walking around saying, I'm going to kill you, it probably is a good sign that you need to get out of town. And that's what he does. The Bible says that Jacob, under his mom and dad's blessing, goes to Pada Aram, which is a city a little ways away, so he can start to develop a family. Because in that area and in that time, your family lineage, your wives and your children were where you had all of your influence. They were where you had those things that were most important to you. The Bible says that Esau at that moment went the other direction. And it's actually in his story, which is a flashback that shows up in Genesis chapter 36, that we're going to be getting our reading this morning. In Genesis chapter 36, verses 6 through 8, it says it this way. It says that Esau took his wives and his children and his entire household along with his livestock and cattle, all the wealth he had acquired in the land of Canaan and moved away from his brother Jacob. There was not enough land to support them both because of all the livestock and possessions they had acquired. So Esau, also known as Edom, settled in the hill country of Seir. You see, they created a new boundary. They had had this space where they were constantly in a rivalry and they knew that they needed to break apart. And this boundary that they create, the Bible tells us that it lasts for 20 years. 20 years of living in different cities than your siblings. 20 years of saying those relationships that we have formed literally don't matter anymore. No FaceTime, no Thanksgiving meals, nothing. We are broken apart. 
At the end of 20 years, Jacob sends a messenger out to Esau and says, hey, maybe we could get together and talk sometime. The messenger comes back and tells Jacob, you know, Esau, Esau said he'd be happy to come, but he's got a group of 400 men that he's going to bring with him for your meeting. Even at their meeting, they exchange some niceties. Esau hugs them and keeps referring to Jacob as brother. Jacob still feels kind of weird about it, keeps calling Esau master. And as the story ends, Esau tells Jacob, well, why don't you just come back home with me? Why don't you just come back to where I live? And Jacob pulls the old move of, sure, I'll be right behind you. I'll be right behind you. I'll be right. I'm going the other way. And he splits. And the Bible tells us that they never come in contact again until they come together to bury their father. Not exactly the best story of reconciliation. At best, it's maybe a story of short-term peaceful coexistence. And the reason that we know it's short-term is that from looking at history, the way that Jacob and Esau's lives develop, Jacob ends up having this wrestling match, and God says, you are now known as Israel, and your descendants will be the people of Israel, while Esau, known as Edom, ends up partnering with his uncle Ishmael, and they form what we now know as Palestine, the Arab people. This grouping of people that if you've checked the news any time in the last 2,000 years, don't seem to be getting along. They don't have a good relationship. They set boundaries that were short-term effective because they stopped people from being frustrated at each other, but long-term, we didn't get there. So the question is, when you look at these boundaries that were drawn, these boundaries, these lines that happened, is there anything positive that we can pull out of this story? I think this morning, there's a couple of things that we can pull out of their story to see that even though their boundaries weren't perfect, there are some things that they did that were effective, and then we can see how we can actually look at that in our own lives, okay? The very first thing that I want you to catch about what they did with their boundaries is that boundaries help define what is important to you. Boundaries help define what is important to you. If you look at this story, if you look at the story, the very first thing that you'll notice here is that Esau went back. The Bible says in Genesis chapter 36 that Esau went to this city, and it says there that the reason that he went away with his wives and his children and his cattle, those things that were the most important to him, is he said, because the land of Canaan isn't sufficient for us. But the truth is that Canaan was very sufficient. It had plenty of of areas to be able to feed their cattle and their livestock. But realistically, what Esau was doing was this sort of schoolyard bully thing that you might see on the playground where two bullies look at each other and say, "This, this here schoolyard ain't big enough for the two of us. And so they split. Esau goes and defines that which is most important to him. Jacob, with his mom and dad's blessing, when he goes to Pada Aram, take and find a family. He defines that thing which is most important to him. His, his legacy gets established because of what happens. And it's honestly through that that we see a lot of our livelihood even now, where we see that it's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that sometimes people will refer to. We see this lineage that ends up with Jesus, and we see this story where, Jesus, or where Jacob leaves to go define that which is most important. 
Sometimes the lines that we draw like that are physical. They're in the sand. We say, okay, this is my boundary. You can't go any further than that. Sometimes they don't actually have to do with drawing a line with something that you can see, but sometimes it's maybe with how you experience or something that you can smell. And one of the best examples of that happened in 2008. Howard Schultz, the president and CEO of Starbucks, started really fretting one day because he went into a Starbucks and realized that instead of smelling coffee when he first walked in, the first thing that he smelled was bacon and eggs because they were making sandwiches. He said, ah, that's not what it's supposed to be. The first thing he heard wasn't the grinding of coffee beans. It was loud music. <laughs> and as he looked around for pounds of coffee or coffee cups, all he saw were iTunes gift cards. This isn't quite right. So in February of 2008, Howard Schultz established a priority that established a boundary that defined his priority. He said Starbucks is going to be known for great coffee. And what he did in February of 2008 is he shut down all the Starbucks and said, we're going to learn to make good coffee. The end. We've got to do the right thing first. If people don't come and get a cup of coffee, that's good. We've missed the boat. And so even though it cost him millions of dollars in lost productivity, in wages, in lost product, he said, it doesn't matter. I've got to define that which is most important to me and draw a boundary around it. And, and in all honesty, that type of priority defined not only for him and for the people that work at Starbucks what's most important, it also defined that for his customers, for other businesses. When people would come to him, it allowed them to decide is this a project that we're going to take on or not? A couple of weeks ago, I was talking to a friend of mine that I play tennis with a couple of times a week. And he said, one of the boundaries that I've recently started drawing is that every day when I get home from work, I plug in my cell phone and I don't check it again until the morning. Now, if one of my grown kids calls, I'll take that call. But other than that, if it's just a business acquaintance, I don't need to take that call after I get home. And the reason that this happened is because it defines as a priority not only to him that when I get home, I'm home, but it also defines that to his wife and says that when I get home, you're the most important to me. It defines to his kids and says, if you call, you're the only one that can get through. I'm not going to take call from business associates. And yes, I may miss out on a sales call. I'll deal with that. Because it not only defines my priority for myself, but it also defines my priority for my family and ultimately for the other businesses that he interacts with. It allows him to say to his clients, look, if you want to call me, call me during business hours, and that's fantastic. I'll be happy to get right on that. But if you call me after five, I'm not going to answer. It defines that boundary. It defines what is the most important, both for you and for those around you. And part of the reason for that is this. If we don't define these boundaries, they will end up getting defined for us. We know how much of a connected world that we live in. I mean, honestly, most of us this morning have experienced FOMO. Anybody know what FOMO is, by the way? It's the fear of missing out. And if you don't believe me, how many of your pockets have vibrated in the last hour when your phone didn't really? <laughs> right? You thought you felt it vibrate? We are so connected with our watches, with our phones, with our email, that we're afraid that we're going to miss out on something. Fear of missing out. FOMO. 
We're afraid that something's going to happen. And the reason is because we've allowed other people to draw these boundaries for us, to say that if you're not connected all the time, that you're not sufficient. So one of the things that boundaries do is they help you to define that which is most important to you. But the second thing that boundaries do is boundaries also help you to protect those things that are most important to you. The Bible says that Esau took his wives and his cattle and things like that and went off to Seir. People read that Jacob also did the same thing. And the, the truth is, when we get to those areas, we, we understand that you wouldn't have been upset at all if you would have seen that Esau would have been furious because of Jacob taking advantage of him. I mean, the Bible says that Esau said, I'm going to kill you. And maybe we could even understand that, right? That you would get so angry when you've been taken advantage of not once but twice by your brother. We could also obviously understand why Jacob would be scared because Esau is this giant man who says, I'm going to kill you. And, and, and we wouldn't have thought anything ill of them trying to draw boundaries to protect themselves in those areas. But for many of the times, we, we get scared when it comes to drawing boundaries because we think, look, if I draw a boundary, everyone's going to think I'm being selfish. Everyone's going to think, like, if I say no, you're not allowed to call after five, that I'm being too self-centered. Or we think things like, if I tell people this is my boundary, then they're going to think less of me. Because we've developed a culture, unfortunately, that when we say no to someone, we believe that we're saying no to the individual instead of no to the idea. And a lot of times, I think it's this boundary that we have to have that protects us. Dr. Henry Cloud, who wrote the book Boundaries, that a lot of the ideas from this series have kind of come from, which, by the way, if you're interested in seeing a copy of that book, there's a copy of that book and some other resources as you step outside here today. Dr. Henry Cloud, when he was talking about boundaries, actually said something that I think is really interesting. He said it this way. He said, we change our behavior when the pain of staying the same becomes greater than the pain of changing consequences give us the pain that motivates us to change. And honestly, most of us just kind of intuitively know this too. We know that when we go through incredible pain that we're likely to change our behaviors. We, we know that the old adage of hurt people hurt people is true. And so when you get hurt, you tend to walk away or draw some kind of a boundary. Think about it. If, if you get pulled over for speeding... How many times do you keep checking your rearview mirror to see if the lights are going on behind you? You've drawn a boundary. If you go to the doctor and the doctor says, look, if you don't lose 20 pounds, you're going to die. We start drawing boundaries around our refrigerator. Or when you come home from work late for the 200th day in a row and your spouse meets you at the door with a divorce decree saying, You've become a workaholic. It's often those times, those pain points, that we know that we have to make a change. We can no longer stay in the same place. We've got to draw a boundary. But I wonder, is it possible that we could do that before the pain comes? Is there a way to preempt it? 
Is there a way that we could preventatively draw boundaries that say you're not allowed in here? That we could look at an example somewhere and figure out what this means. You see, it's often the pain that allows us to move past the embarrassment of setting up the boundary, but I'm curious if there's a different way. And and this morning, one of the things that I'd like to share with you is that I believe there is. As someone who's a Jesus follower, what what I believe is that when we look at the life of Jesus, we see the story of someone who drew effective, healthy boundaries, uh, of someone who said that this is the life that you should follow after. This is what you should be able to do. And this morning, I'd like to show you three pieces to this that he did that I believe that if we do, we can also draw healthy and effective boundaries. The first thing that Jesus did was this. Jesus knew his priorities, and he was willing to sacrifice for them. Jesus knew his priorities, and he was willing to sacrifice for them. The Bible tells us that when Jesus was asked, like, why did you come here? What is this all about? He said, I came to seek and to save those who are lost. His priority was very simple and very straightforward. He came because relationships matter, because you matter. He didn't come to, like, reform the government. He didn't come to make certain things easier, to make bad people into good people. Jesus came to make dead people into alive people, And Jesus came to this earth because he looked at people like Chris Roberts and like you who are far from God and said, I'm willing to do whatever it takes to bring them back into relationship with God. Paul, who wrote a good chunk of the New Testament, even said it this way. He said that Jesus died so that by our believing, we could receive the spirit that God promised. You see, Jesus had a very specific goal when he came to this earth, which was to draw you back into relationship with God. That was his priority, and he was willing to do whatever it took. Jesus knew his main priority, and he was willing to do whatever it took to do that. But he wouldn't have done it for just other reasons. You see, Jesus wasn't willing to die just for nothing. He was willing to die for you and for me. But after Jesus knew what his priority was, the second thing was this that he had some people who he shared priorities with and he was able to drop his boundaries with them. The Bible tells us that most of Jesus' life, he hung out with just 12 guys, the disciples. These were the people that he walked around with, that he talked with, that he lived life together with, that he told jokes to, which I'd have to imagine, by the way, that Jesus' jokes were pretty awesome. Uh, He lived his entire life around them. But even inside of that group, there was an even smaller group of three guys named Peter, James, and John. And Peter, James, and John got to see it all. They got to go to the mountaintop experiences. And in fact, when Jesus was at his lowest moment, just before he was taken away to be crucified, and he was going to the garden to pray, he says to those three men, here's the deal. I need you to come and keep watch with me. It's these people who we can be absolutely vulnerable with. Jesus knew that there were people that he needed to be that way with. And part of the reason I believe is this, that he also had people, and this is the third thing, he had people that he knew he was pouring into without them pouring into him. And he knew that after pouring into them, he would want to go back to those closest to him. Now, we read a lot of stories in the Bible where Jesus like feeds 5,000 or heals uh, someone who's sick or whatever, 
And in a lot of those stories, the Bible says that Jesus goes back and prays. And that's awesome. Jesus had that space with God, just like one of our commitments here at Grace is personal time with God. But if on the back of your sermon notes, it says to read through Mark 3 this week. And the reason is that in Mark 3, there's this really interesting story where Jesus has been doing all these miracles. And then he takes those closest to him up to a mountain and he starts delegating to them. He says, you take care of this. I, I trust you. I need to, I, I've poured out to people who will never reciprocate. Now I need to trust you with these things right now. Could Jesus have handled it? Absolutely, he was God. But I believe that Jesus lived as an example for us to follow. And as we look at this, I think there are three things that we can pull out of this ourselves. The first thing is this. We need to know what things you are willing to cross the line for and which things you aren't. You need to be knowing those things that you're willing to cross the line for, those things that you're willing to sacrifice for. The Bible says that Jesus knew that his goal was to come to seek and save that which was lost, which includes us. On January 4th of this year, I started really thinking about this seriously, about what it looks like to define my priorities, the things that are the most important, the things that I will sacrifice everything for. And then draw the lines and say, if it's not that, it's not worth sacrificing for. Or at least not everything. So I'm going to take just a minute. I'm going to be really vulnerable with you this morning. Because I wrote these five things down. I put them in my Evernote, which is my note-taking app on my computer. And I see them every day. Because they remind me, because I will forget these if I don't look at them. But I want to share them with you. These are my five. And here in a minute, I'm going to tell you that I'm going to ask you to think about what your three to five are as well. What are the three to five things that are absolutely that you would draw a line in the sand and say, these are the things that I'm willing to sacrifice for? These are mine. Number one is this. I will trust that Jesus loves me more than I can understand. And when I feel powerless in my situation, I will trust that Jesus is more powerful than my doubts. Number two. My first and foremost role on this planet is to love Jesus. Second is to love Morgan. That's my wife. All other things, work, school, church, other relationships, and even personal comfort. We'll take a back seat to these. Which, by the way, it's why on Monday nights, it's my date night, I don't schedule meetings. Monday night, I'm going to be with my wife, the end, good night. Three, I love people. Not because they have something to offer me, or because I can use them somehow, but because Jesus loved them enough to die for them. Four, I will believe the best in people first. And five, students that I come into contact with today have the best chance of living into a life of loving Jesus because of the consistent nature of my life. Those are my boundaries. (laughs) You don't cross them. If I'm going to have something that I'm going to sacrifice for, it's that. And I'm going to ask you here in a minute, on the bottom of your sermon notes, it says, what three to five priorities do you have that you're willing to sacrifice for? I believe that that is the first step towards developing healthy boundaries. What things are you willing, or people, or ideas, are you willing to sacrifice everything for? The second step is also hyper-practical, and that's this. You've got to know who shares your priority 
that you can drop the boundaries with, that you can fully let in. We see that Jesus had this group of three guys and then the disciples that he was willing to drop his boundaries with. For us here at Grace, the way that we do that is through something called life groups. We believe that there's this space that when we get together on a weekly basis and we share life together and we pray together and we read the Bible together, that there's something that happens that is outstanding because we can drop our boundaries. You know, because of vacation time, sometimes I'll miss a Sunday. But I'll tell you, unless I'm in a different state, I might miss a Sunday, but I'm not going to miss my life group. It's those people that I love so dearly that see the inside of me, that see what is really going on in Chris's life that I can be vulnerable with. And I'll tell you why that's so important is because of number three. Is that you've got to figure out if there's anyone that you pour into without reciprocation and know that it's okay to pour into them and then go back to those closest to you. You know, many of us have people that we pour into knowing that they will never give it back. Maybe you're a parent and it's your kids. Maybe you're a teacher and it's your students or you're a a physician and it's your patients. Maybe you're an employee and it's your boss that's always asking you to do certain things and you know you've got to just keep pouring in and they don't give you anything back that really feeds your life. There's a space to do that. There's a space to pour in. There's a space to give life. But you've also got to have a space where you get life as well. And I honestly believe that when we start drawing healthy boundaries that define and protect our priorities, that we can do that effectively so that we can show love and Jesus to the world around us. This morning, I'm going to ask you when we pray here in just a minute to be thinking about what are those three to five things that you're going to draw your boundary around I believe that fully, if we started doing that, if we started saying no to the extraneous so that we could say yes to the most important and we drew our boundaries so that we could give our best to Jesus, that Northwest Tucson has no chance against the love of Christ to be changed, to be radically in love with God. Let me say this too, though. I think there's one other reason that people sometimes draw boundaries. And it's not to define priorities and it's not to protect priorities, but it's because of pride. I think a lot of us, myself included, draw boundaries that don't work because we are, we are prideful and we say, I'm not going to join a life group because then someone might have to know who I am on the inside. But we say things like, I can do it all. I don't need to draw boundaries. And and so we draw our boundary, and it's so huge that anything and everything goes. Because I can do it all, and it doesn't matter who I hurt. I think ultimately that's the reason some of us draw boundaries with God. Is we say to God, God, I got this thing figured out. I don't need you. Yeah, I've heard the story about Jesus and the cross and the resurrection. I've heard that story. Maybe I even sang some songs about it, but I'm just not really there. I don't want to give you that space. And so this morning, I'm going to pray. And if you're in that space where maybe you, you have drawn a different boundary and it's because of pride that you've stopped or you've not allowed Jesus into your life, I want to give you that opportunity this morning before we finish. 
So what I'm going to ask you to do is I'm going to ask everybody to close your eyes. We're going to pray together, okay? And I'm going to ask that if you're in that space, that this morning becomes the time that you drop that boundary that you drew because of pride. Pray with me. Jesus, I know that you broke down every boundary when you came to earth and died for my sins so that they could be forgiven. I confess that I have set up boundaries to our relationship through the ways that I've been selfish and through the things that I've done. So I'm going to ask you to forgive me. I'm going to ask you to come into my life, break down this boundary, because I'm going to choose to live for you. And it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.